Welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss what doesn't fit in the sermon. This is episode 24, and it's called Stones, Thrones, and Homes. And it follows Pastor Mike's teaching on 1 Kings chapters 1 through 9. In this episode, three parts, stones, we're going to look at John Corson's comments on the actual stones of the temple. Some very good insights from him on that. Part two, we're going to look at thrones and we're going to visit Deuteronomy and God's guidelines for kingship and how does Solomon measure up. And finally, we will look at homes and we will answer the question, was Solomon's house a good thing or a bad thing? Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that if you have any questions or wanted to feed any content that you see in the passages or want covered, uh, please always feel free to uh, address me in person if you go to our fellowship, or you can always email me at brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. And you can see the notes for this episode to make sure you spell that properly. Part 1. Stones. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, this is where Solomon begins to build the temple. We read this. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house, that's the temple, while it was being built. What First Kings 6-7 summarizes is how they got the stones that built the temple ready. And they were all shaved and shaped and sized before they got to the construction site. So that at the temple itself, you did not hear a hammer, you did not hear a chisel. Just the simple assembling of the stones into the temple. Now I remember hearing years ago John Corson teach on that verse. And it stuck with me. And when we came to this passage, I recalled it. So I'm going to read a very short passage in his commentary, the best place I could relocate it, uh, and share with you the insights he has. So he can, he connects, just so, to prepare you in going in, he connects, uh, the stones of the temple with ourselves. And, and here's why. Because in 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 5, we're told this. You yourselves, that's us, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves are living stones being built up into a new temple. So like the stones of that temple Solomon built, you and me, the people of God, are stones for this new temple. And then uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so there, just like Peter, Paul has the vision of the believers coming together to build the new temple of God. So, here's what Corson says, and I'm reading a portion of um, the commentary. He's commenting on Ephesians uh, off of 1 Kings. He says, What kind of a foundation grows? What kind of stones expand? Only one kind. Living stones. We're living stones built together in this foundation. We are living, squirming stones. This explains why sometimes we have difficulties with each other. The huge, costly stones for the temple were chipped, carved, and fit together in the quarry so that when they were brought to the temple site, they fit perfectly. This world is the quarry. The place where we, as living stones, are being chiseled and pounded. Why? So that when we get to heaven, we'll fit perfectly. That means I'm going to be challenged by certain people I'd rather not be challenged by. God says, they are the living stones next to you. So you better hang in there because they're my instruments to work on you to shape you, to prepare you for what you're going to be throughout eternity. I'm building a temple for my habitation, and I've got to pound on you for a while. It's foundational. Don't fight it, saint. Flow with it. Say, okay, Lord, if this is the boss you want me to work under, so be it. If this is the situation you want me to be stretched by, I submit to it. Thank the Lord for one another. Receive from each other, knowing God is building you for his glory. May the Lord make you solid below the surface. May your foundation be firm where the eyes of people do not notice. May it be strong and rooted in the knowledge of him so that as the years go by, you might be steadfast in your knowledge of God and in your love for the Lord. And so I love his analogy of sometimes it's the people we're next to. Yep, we don't always get along. Yep, we don't always like them. But by practicing love is rubbing off the rough spots. And so we are being fitted in every situation we are. We are in the quarry being fitted to be that perfect peace that God is looking for in his uh, his temple. And so hang in there as he encourages because God is working on all of us. Part 2. Thrones. God's Guidelines for Kingship from Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20. Bruce Walkie, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, wrote this. Israel's request for a king is not necessarily wrong. Their sin lay in wanting a king like all the other nations. 
And so we see that in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had made provisions for Israel to have a king. He foresaw the kingdom coming. He knew there's going to be King David and King Solomon. That was not wrong, even though Samuel, the prophet in the book of Samuel, uh, seemed troubled by the request for a king. What we learn is that he's troubled by the request for a king like the other nations. You see, the king of Israel was to rule on behalf of Yahweh, not on behalf of himself, not on behalf of the values of the world system. And so the king of Israel was permitted. They were permitted to have a king, but he had to be different. So how was Israel's king to be different? That is what Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20 detail. I will read it and then we'll make a couple notes. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So there we see God setting forth how Israel's king was to be different. And there are four fundamental differences between Israel's king and the kings of all the other nations. First, we read that Israel's king is not to multiply horses. Now, horses would symbolize their military strength. And so the king was not to seek an excessive amount of horses or to spend an excessive amount of energy on beefing up his military. Second, we see that he is not to multiply wives. Now, this is not just some strange male lust that the kings got to satisfy. The marriage between kingdoms was like a trade agreement. It was like uh, international policies. Th this is the way that ancient peoples, it's kind of like the UN for ancient peoples. It's sort of the way they tried to maintain balance. If, um, if a king gives his son to another kingdom and they give their, their daughter, uh, those kingdoms are now in-laws with one another. So they're not as likely to fight. 
Yes, I can hear the in-law jokes at this time. So the wives were a political move. So um, God's wanting Israel's kings not to play the game of marrying multiple wives, but to trust him for peace. And then third, he is not to multiply wealth. So he's not to have excessive wealth. And that's exactly what it says. He shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the economy is not the primary concern of the king either. So think about kings today. Uh, military, politics, economy. Those are the three big things. Horses, wives, and wealth. But Israel's king was told not to make those the main concerns. Rather, the fourth difference between Israel's king and the kings of the nations shows what the king's mission was, what his job description was. So number four, he is to copy the law and read it regularly. So he's not to multiply horses, not to multiply wives, not to multiply wealth, but he is to copy the law and read it regularly. The king is not to be an expert in military, politics, or economy, he's to be an expert in theology. In many ways, the king is the high priest. Yes, they still had the high priest in the temple, but the king is the representative of God's kingship over the world on behalf of the nation. This was to be the king's primary concern. He was to be a writer, a scholar, and a reader. He was to know the law inside and out. Copying it will teach you a lot about the law. And reading it will keep it fresh in your mind. The king's mind was to think along the grooves of the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. He was to live a life in the patterns of the law of God. The king was to model the way of life. Because God has always been concerned with us following his way. It's not just believing in him as if he was insecure and needed all of us to just believe in him. He, of course, it starts with acknowledging he's there. But true followers do what God does. We follow his way of life. And the king was to model that. Now, we don't know for certain if King Solomon copies the law and reads it regularly. He does have wisdom, and he gains that from God, and he starts off well. So we can assume that he was a king of the law. He was a king of God's way. But over time, this began to change, and Solomon breaks the three prohibitions. He begins to multiply horses, wives, and wealth. Now, while it can be argued that God was blessing the nation with wealth, um, the fact that Solomon does multiply horses and wives may indicate that the multiplication of wealth was also perhaps above and beyond what God was wanting to give them. That maybe Solomon became too obsessed in strategizing how much more gold and silver can we get. And when you look through the passage, it's it's absurd how much is there. Um, let me, uh, let's, let's look at Kings and see where Solomon failed in all of these ways. So, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26, you read this. 
and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Okay. And then earlier in the book, it said that he had 44,000 stables. But did you hear that? He stationed in the chariot cities? Solomon has so many horses that he has devoted cities to be populated by horses and horsemen. Entire cities become massive stables. Horse cities. That's, that's hard to fathom. And it goes on to say, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as a sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon, now here's where the horses gets more to what God told him not to do. And Solomon's import of horses was from, you guessed it, Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And then, so we've already killed two birds with one stone. We see that Solomon's multiplying horses and wealth. Now he's multiplying wives. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. You see the key there? Foreign women. These are marriages that are meant to be political treaties. He loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh was his first wife. So then he added on top of that, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And guess what? His wives turned away his heart. So perhaps Solomon did read and copy the law, but somewhere he must have stopped reading it because he then disobeys the three prohibitions. And so then it's not a surprise that Solomon, uh, the wisest, wealthiest king in Israel, eventually spirals downward and uh, his heart is turned away. And then we see his son is unable to keep the kingdom unified. And it's when Solomon passes that the kingdom that David worked to unify divides. Ten tribes go away from the throne of David, and only Judah and Benjamin remain in Jerusalem. And the rest of the ten go and start their own nation, which is full of idolatry. But we'll hear about all of that as we progress in our study in the book of Kings. A side note on Solomon's wealth. In 1 Kings 4, verse 22, we read this. 
Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So, some of that may not make a lot of sense to you, how many cores of fine flour and such. So I did some um, homework, and this is this is what I came up with. So what this equates to in our terminology is this. In order to feed his house, Solomon required around 80,000 pounds of food a day. That's 1,500 gallons of flour, 3,000 gallons of grains, 10 oxen, 20 cattle, 100 sheep, and a variety of deer, gazelles, roebucks, and the best of fowl. (laughs) Are you kidding me? 80,000 pounds of food a day. And not only 80,000 pounds of food a day, but he's providing the best. You notice it said 20 pasture-fed cattle. So those 20 cattle, they're free-range cattle, right? Like That's considered the best in America. A grass-fed, free-range cattle. That's what he is giving his people. So, you know, of course, they didn't have organic back then, but it's the equivalent to our orga- organic, free-range, grass-fed, like the most expensive price tag on all this food that you can get. You know it was all organic. <laughs> Solomon was dishing out the best 80,000 pounds of food a day. Yep, that, my friends, is wealth to the excess. Part 3. Homes. Is Solomon's house a good thing or a bad thing? So in Pastor Mike's message, he pointed out that in chapter 7... Uh, it mentions that Solomon was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished his entire house. And that's right after the last verse in chapter 6, when it says uh, he was seven years in building the temple. So seven years in building the temple, 13 years in building his own house. And uh, he mentioned, so is th- does that mean that Solomon had his priorities mixed up, or is it more of a thing where he had to spend more years planning? Because the temple was already planned. It was basically the tabernacle just kind of blown up a bit. And David had already set aside some provisions. So is it simply just that the temple took quicker, or did Solomon have his priorities out of balance? And Pastor Mike just left it neutral for us to decide. Um, I want to throw in my two cents and only because it seems that in the text, there is the narrator, our storyteller, wants us to see this in a specific way. And I'll show you how. Our narrator wants us to see Solomon's house building as a negative thing. In other words, that Solomon had his priorities misaligned. Now, while what he was doing with the temple was great, fine and dandy, Solomon also had a bit of his own glory in mind. And how can you not with all the wealth, the wives, and the horses that he had accumulated? Well, I want to show you how the story itself wants us to to read it this way. And now, I uh, have retrieved this. I already mentioned him earlier in this episode. I've retrieved this from the excellent 
commentary by Bruce Welke called An Old Testament Theology. If you want an, a book on Old Testament theology, this is, I, don't, I have not read a ton of Old Testament theology books, but this is my favorite. And I come to this every time I teach the Old Testament. I am opening this up for at least something, um, hoping that it covers something that I'm teaching on, because it is always gold. Um, primarily because this author likes to delve into the literary structure, which is something I'm very drawn to. I love reading. I love literature. I love stories. I love fiction, nonfiction, uh, the Bible, like all, I just love the way narratives are put together. And so um, when this author digs into that aspect, I really cling to it. So I want to share with you um, how he has presented first Kings chapters one through 11. And um, this actually doesn't come from him. It's in his book, but he is citing um, a different scholar's work. So here is how he breaks this down. So what you need to see first and foremost is that First Kings chapters 1 through 11 form the first section of First and Second Kings. Now remember, First and Second Kings are only two books in our Bible because they fill the entire length of a standard size scroll. Ideally, first and second kings would fit as one whole work, but the Jews had to split it into two because of the size of their scrolls. So we, re- we need to get in the habit of seeing first and second kings really as one work known as kings. So first kings chapters one through 11 form the first section of the book of kings. Now, within this section, he identifies what is called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Now, don't lose me. This isn't that the word I know sounds bizarre, but the concept is quite interesting. Now, what a chiastic structure does is it takes the text and finds. I want you to imagine like you you have a piece of paper and it finds the middle so the, the text is like a piece of paper and it finds the middle and folds it in half so that in the center of the fold is the center of the story and in the center of the story is the most important point of the story. Then from the fold working outward, imagine that both sides of the paper mirror each other. Okay. So that's how a chiastic structure works. So on the far left edge of the paper, you would have an A. On the far right edge of the paper, you would have an A. A little inward on the left, you have a B. Um, a little inward from the right, far right edge, you would have a B. So from the edges of the paper, it moves inward, mirroring each other. A, B, C, D, till you get to the center. So I hope that makes sense. So to give you a brief example, a very small chiastic structure, it would sound like this. Event A happens. Event B happens. The center of the story. Another event that mirrors event B happens. Another event that mirrors event A happens. So you have an A, B, center, B, A structure. So hopefully you're following that. And if you are, listen to how 1 Kings 1 through 11's chiastic structure is formed. Part A is chapters 1 verse 1 through 2 verse 12. And we see a prophet intervening in the royal succession. 
Nathan intervenes in all this chaos in Jerusalem and says, Solomon is to be king. And then the motion goes forth to put Solomon in power. Part B, Solomon eliminates the threats to his security. This is chapters 2 through 2 verse 13 through 46. So the rest of chapter 2. And Solomon eliminates Adonijah. He eliminates Abiathar. He eliminates Joab. And he eliminates Shimei. So four adversaries are put down and he now has the throne. Part C. We see the early promise of Solomon's reign in chapter 3. God visits him and grants him wisdom. And so we're left from that episode thinking, wow, Solomon's reign is going to be great. Part D, Solomon uses that wisdom for the people. And so in 3 verse 16, we're launched with this example of the two prostitutes who are arguing over a single baby, both claiming it to be theirs. Solomon, in great wisdom, finds out whose baby it belongs to by commanding it to be cut in half. The fake mother says, go ahead. And the real mother says, no, please don't do it. And Solomon figured out, please don't do it. Give the baby to the other woman. That sacrifice to Solomon tipped off. That's the real mother. So we see him using this great wisdom right after he's given it by God for the sake of the people. And then um, chapter 4 goes on in detailing how he uses the wisdom to better the kingdom. We see uh, that people are sitting underneath their own olive tree, their own fig tree, under their own vine. They're dwelling in safety. Then part E preparations for building the temple are in chapter 5. So we see him getting the temple ready. And then part F, Solomon Solomon begins building the temple. That's chapter 6. Okay. Then we come to the very center of the chiastic structure. And that is chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Solomon builds rival buildings. While he's building the temple, he's building rival structures alongside the temple. Chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. I'm going to skip around a little bit to get an idea of what he's building. He's building, verse 2, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Worth looking into reading about that um, on what it was. It sounds like he created a building to simulate the Lebanon forests, an indoor forest. I can only imagine how amazing that could have been. Second, verse six, he made the hall of pillars. Third, verse seven, he made the hall of the throne. So he, he he made his own building for the throne room, and this is a magnificent throne. Uh, he's he carves um, he carves his throne with lions on each side, and then he's got lions coming up, six lions on each side of the steps going up to the throne, and uh, he's just got li- and living lions on the steps. It's just a magnificent uh, statement. Here's a king. And real lions. Yeah, two lions are carved into his throne. But then he's got living, live lions on his steps. Man, that's a symbol of power, isn't it? 
And then, um, fourth, verse eight says, he built his own house where he was to dwell. Um, in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. And then fifth, Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. So he's spending 13 years building these five buildings, which you may not be convinced yet. Maybe like, okay, so what? He's building some buildings. But you got to follow the caustic structure, okay? So this section is the middle. So now what we're going to do is we're going to walk outward with the same pattern that walked us into this text. So remember, right before chapter 7, it said Solomon begins building the temple. Well, now in 7.13, we're back in section F. We're walking out of the center. Solomon completes building the temple. So in 6, he began building it. In 7.13, to the end of the chapter, he completes building it. See the mirror? And so what's also interesting is that this center is in the midst of two passages about building the temple. In part F, Solomon begins building the temple in chapter 6. In the second part F, Solomon completes building the temple in chapter 7. And in the very center of that, we're interrupted. The narrative is interrupted by the storyteller telling us about Solomon's rival buildings. Okay, the fact that it's inserted in the center of the building of the temple situation to me signals, hello, this is an intrusion, but the chiastic structure continues to mirror. And as we're mirroring outward from the center, you're going to notice that um, the corresponding parts are the same, but they're now in the negative So follow me. So we just did part F. Solomon completes building the temple, the rest of chapter 7. Now, in chapter 8, verse 1 to 9, verse 9, we have part E. Solomon dedicates the temple and is warned by God. Okay, so now we see this warning, like, you better walk in my statutes or it's not going to end well for you. Now, part D. Remember in part D, going toward the center? It said Solomon uses his wisdom for the people and he helped the two prostitutes and he had administration and the people are living in prosperity. That was in chapters three and four. Well, now in part D, walking away from the center, we see that Solomon uses wisdom for himself. In chapter nine, verse 10 to 10 through 29. And you can read more closely on that, but we see um, that he's, he, he is still wise, but he's beginning to do things more in his own, for his own glory. It's not so much people centered as it is about getting my kingdom built up centered. And it even begins to talk about forced labor in chapter nine, verse 15, forced labor. Wouldn't Israel of all nations, of all kings, wouldn't Israel be the nation to understand what it would be like to be under forced labor? Yet Solomon puts foreign nations under forced labor. Well, it's what kings did back then. Yes, but remember, Israel's king was not to be like the kings of the nations. Now, part C, walking out from the center, the tragic failure of Solomon's reign. So part C, going toward the center, was the early promise of Solomon's reign. God visits him. He asks for wisdom. God promises him wisdom. 
Now part C, walking away from the center, walking away from building his own house. We see the tragic failure of Solomon's reign in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And that we read in part two. This is where Solomon begins to multiply wives for himself and they turn his heart away from Yahweh. Part B, walking away from the center. Yahweh raises up threats to Solomon's security. Chapter 11, verse 14. Yahweh raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. 11, verse 23. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliad. Chapter 11, verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And Jeroboam will eventually be the one to lead ten tribes in splitting away from the throne of David. So now threats are raising up. Remember part B, leading toward the center? Solomon eliminated the threats to his throne. Now Yahweh's raised up threats against his throne. And then finally, the end of chapters 1 through 11. And the rest of chapter 11, starting verse 26, we see another prophet come into play. Remember in part A earlier, it was Nathan who had a say in who was the next king. Nathan said Solomon. Now we see a prophet having a say in who will be the next king. So in part A, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 26, um, and to the rest of the chapter, we see in there the prophet Ahijah comes and he's wearing a new garment and he comes upon a Jeroboam and he tears his garment in front of Jeroboam. He tears his garment into 12 pieces and he says to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Wow. So see how it works? The chiastic structure. It was all starting so well for Solomon. A. The prophet anoints him. B. He overcomes his enemies. C. He has a promising reign of wisdom. D. He uses the wisdom for the people. E. He prepares building the temple. F. He begins building the temple. Middle. He builds his own rival buildings. Now working out from the middle. F. He completes building the temple. E. He dedicates the temple, but is warned by God. D. He uses wisdom now for himself. C. We see the tragic failure of Solomon's reign. B, Lord raises up threats against Solomon. And A, a prophet predicts a king not of Solomon's line. And so the narrative of Solomon ends sadly. And at the very center of this narrative, interrupting the narrative about the temple building. So this is very intentional storytelling here is him building his own buildings. 
I know we went to some detail. Um, I hope you followed that because it's really cool to see on paper. You really see the center and um, it just stands out. When Solomon was interested in himself, things went awry. And so you and I, wisdom is found from God, but it's maintained in following God. Solomon was wise, but he did make some foolish decisions like marrying multiple women and turning his heart away from Yahweh. And so be warned here, be warned. What are we building? Are we building the kingdom of God? Or are we building homes, names for ourselves? Remember the barn builder, the foolish barn builder Jesus talks about in Luke? You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He's building up barns to store his grain rather than sharing with the needy. And he dies with that much excess. Remember the builders of the Tower of Babel? Let us come. Let us make a name for ourselves. And so, um, building the temple of God, the church, the people of God, that's a good move. And remember, you're living stones. We're coming together. It's about learning to live together, work together. Wisdom is about finding how to use what's around us for the furthering of the temple of God. That's wisdom. Not um, extracting resources to build your own idea of what should be going on. So may we learn from Solomon, the almost perfect king, who, of course, whose downfalls were fulfilled by Christ, our perfect king. May we learn to build and use our wisdom for others and for the kingdom of God. And so this serves in some ways as a preview of the upcoming text, because we've touched on things that I will begin teaching this upcoming Sunday in 1 Kings chapters 10 through 16. So, happy reading. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. I thank you for listening.